check. One, two, one, two. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Happy New Year. Oh, first of all, how's this new microphone sound? So I decided to get a new mic because what I was using before was just a pair of old headphones and the microphone that came attached to the cable. And the sound quality was not ideal at all for recording. So so here we have a bit of an improved sound quality for the new year. Um, so yeah, welcome guys to another episode of Sticky Rice. I hope everyone is doing well. 2020 has come and gone and what a crazy year it has been for everyone. I think we can all agree on that. Um, now, as, as challenging as it was, I'm somewhat reluctant to join in on what seems to be the prevailing narrative of 2020, which is that it was all doom and gloom. And yes, it did present us with many challenges, but before we relegate 2020 into nothing more than a disturbing, distant memory, one thing that last year did give us was time. Um, and with that came the opportunity to reassess, well, anything and everything really from just our everyday lives, our futures, our health, our work, creative projects. Um, and I think for me, what I wanted to focus on was my creativity with photography and just kind of immerse myself in the industry. And one aspect of that was this podcast. So with this episode, I wanted to take a look back at the previous episodes and just re review some of the highlights and key points from the different guests that I've had. Perhaps you didn't catch every episode or weren't familiar with some of my guests. Plus, I wanted to review these episodes as a kind of personal exercise to spend a couple of minutes to just touch on the best bits and some of the hidden gems in the conversations that I've had with them so that we photographers and creatives can take in their knowledge and experience with the intention of helping us on our journey to becoming the best we can be in our respective disciplines. Okay, so in addition to reviewing previous episodes, I also thought I'd talk a little bit about the different sources of inspiration we have as photographers. Um, we quite often turn to the works of other photographers, whether it's because they have a particular style that we really admire, or they have you know, a really impressive portfolio of images for the biggest brands and publications, etc. And that does absolutely serve its purpose. But I think it's also really important that we look beyond the sphere of photography and, and have a peek into other worlds for inspiration. In fact, Chase Jarvis, who's quite a famous photographer over in the States, he's known for saying one of the dirtiest secrets in photography is that the best things in photography come from outside the industry. So I wanted to explore that a little bit in this episode as well, um, because I can see how that's true. For me personally, there are a couple of other industries, artists, and and even athletes that inspire me and can even inject some creative fuel as well. So I think looking outside the photography world can really act as a key differentiator when it comes to your creative work. So I'll be touching on that a little bit later in the episode as well. And finally, to wrap things up, I thought I'd narrate my last sort of mini essay, which I published on my website a few days ago, where I discussed my thoughts on the North Face and Gucci collaboration. So I like to read these little essays out every now and again, because I can appreciate um, not everyone likes to kind of work their way through a block of black and white text. And um, to be honest, I'm much quite, I'm much the same as well at times. I, I much prefer um, audio books, uh, podcasts, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I thought I would bring that essay to you in podcast format. Okay. But first let's go back to the first episode, which was of course an introductory episode where I introduced the concept of the podcast and what my intentions are behind it. So my plan for this podcast was to interview photographers and anyone in the industry really that, that has made a name for themselves and managed to carve their own way through life 
by doing what it is they're passionate about. And with this podcast, I pick their brain a little bit and get a better understanding of how they got to where they are today and all the challenges and, and successes that come along with pursuing um, their passion and having some autonomy in, in their life. So um, the answers, their answers to my questions, hopefully shed some light and, and offer some encouragement to all the other for all the other creatives who are on their journey to um, hopefully succeeding in their respective industry and discipline. Um, so yeah, in this intro episode, I also explained why I called this podcast Sticky Rice. And for those who are new to this podcast or didn't catch all the episodes or didn't catch that particular episode, it's because when I was a wee young boy, whenever I would make a collage or, or do any kind of art project that required sticking bits of paper together instead of going out and buying glue my mom would just give us um, a small bowl of sticky rice from the kitchen to use as glue instead so calling this podcast sticky rice kind of plays kind of pays homage to that memory after all this podcast is a kind of collage of conversations and interviews if you like with people in the industry so so there you have it that's why um the podcast is called sticky rice um the original plan was actually to do the majority of interviews in person face to face um and take a portrait of my guest and use that as the cover art for the episode but because i started this project during the first lockdown back in april last year that obviously wasn't going to be possible. And at one point I was really considering holding off on it until lockdown restrictions were lifted. But but because I was pretty much stuck in Austria at that point, I was really craving a creative outlet and, and one that would serve me in my pursuit for improving my photography and and also one that I could share with other photographers. Um, the other thing is that I knew that the people I wanted to interview were also most likely in some kind of lockdown as well, wherever they, they're based in the world and and therefore more open to having a, an interview with me. So yeah, I'm really glad um, I started it when I did because these lockdown restrictions are still ongoing. Um, yeah, it kind of serves as a little reminder that there's no time like the present to pull that trigger on whatever project you have in mind that you've been putting off for a while. So, so yeah, speaking of being stuck in Austria, the cover art for this episode um, is a shot that I took in Austria around the time I started recording the first few episodes. Um, and it's a photograph of the Mittagspitze. Mittagspitze. <laughs> I think that's how you say it. Um, which is one of the many mountains you can climb in in that particular region where I was based at the time. Okay, so the first interview that I actually want to talk about is my interview with Russell Ord, who is quite frankly one of the world's greatest surf and ocean photographers. And I first met Russell in Australia back in 2018 on a surf photography workshop and was actually lucky enough to road to also road trip with him um, on the west coast of Australia, I think. Um, maybe six months or so after first meeting Russell. Um, and that road trip was really an incredible experience. And I look back at that memory and and have a little giggle with myself at the fact that that actually happened because, yeah, it was um, absolutely just a trip of a lifetime. And after spending some time with Russell on the road, I really wanted to kind of bring that you could call it a Russell experience to you guys via the podcast, because he really does have an extraordinary outlook on life, not to mention his breathtaking ocean and surf photography. Um, if you haven't already, I would really encourage you to check out the documentary made on Russell called One Shot. And you can find that quite easily online. Um, it's really an epic film that documents Russell's pursuit of capturing breathtaking surf images in some of the craziest waves in Western Australia. And it also takes a bit of a dive into the surf photography industry and how it's 
kind of exploded from a small subculture into almost a mainstream art form. So yeah, do check it out. It's called One Shot and there's a link to it on Russell's website, russellordphoto.com. So that's russellordphoto.com. Now, what I love about Russell's journey to becoming the photographer he is today is how he went all in on his passion for the ocean and for photography, leaving behind a career in the fire brigade to go full-time as a surf photographer. But this, of course, wasn't an overnight occurrence. It was an, an accumulation of years spent in the ocean, firstly as a surfer growing up, and then as a photographer, mastering his watermanship skills alongside his technical prowess on the camera. And in the in the interview I had with him, he really stressed that when you're embarking on something like surf photography, which has a strong element of risk and danger, it's really important to leave your ego at the door and respect the journey and the work that you have to put in to build up to the point where you can go out and shoot big waves. And on this point, he drew a parallel with professional boxers. And we've all seen them on social media flaunt their riches and, um, you know, show their big mansion, the, the stacks and stacks of cash in their hands, um, the jewelry, that lavish lifestyle. But something we're not always exposed to are the hours and hours and hours of hard training over a period of years that got them to where they are now. And he mentioned how social media is partly to blame for this culture of instant gratification and instant success when of course that's not reflective of the whole picture at all um he even said he could post a photo of what it's really like sometimes which is him sitting in front of a computer for for three days trying to get booked for a job as a photographer but that probably won't get as much engagement as one of his best photographs because most people don't appreciate the hard graft behind the scenes so so yeah, that was a really interesting point that he brought up and he brought up many other interesting points. So so what I thought I'd do is just play a segment of Russell's interview um, for you to hear for yourselves. Did having children and, and being married, did that ever affect your decisions to go out and shoot the big, big surf? I mean, did it did it motivate you or did it hold you back and make you think twice about taking certain risks? Uh, definitely didn't hold me back. I don't really want to teach my kids to hold back, so I'm not I'm not that type of person to hold back either. And it's it's trying to teach your kids to learn the process. You know, it's not that I'm going out. To, it's not all of a sudden one day I'm shooting one foot waves and then the next day I'm shooting twenty foot waves. It's it, it's a huge long journey of build up. It's the the 10,000 hours like people speak about and I think that gets lost in um, translation in a way especially kids today they see they're only seeing the end result they're not seeing the journey um, and the journey is where where you all the learning takes place and and where you grow as a person as well it's you know you see it's like a boxing champion you see a boxing champion with all this money like how many hours did it take to get to where they they don't see that bit they don't and social media has got a little bit to blame for that because that's mm. the fake life of everywhere they're seeing stuff all the time that this is my life you know I'm guilty of it too so this is my life look at me I'm taking all these beautiful shots and they should just I mean if you want to be honest I could put a shot up oh this is my life I've been sitting in front of a computer three days sending emails to clients hoping for a job but I don't, and why? Why not? And maybe I should. It'd give people a bit more of an insight on how hard stuff is. But it's um, yeah, it's just the journey. It's there's there's no real overnight success stories, in my opinion. Um, yeah, if you can point one out, I'd, <laughs> I'd I'd like to know who it is. But it's there's always there's always lots of hours and lots of energy gone in behind it. I mean, I do. It's like I get people asking me, "Oh, I'd love to go and shoot the 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 right from water or wide and stuff like that." And mm. and I'm just like, "Well, what are you shooting now?" And they're shooting like this a city beach break that's two foot. Like, why would you <laughs> want to jump? It's you've got to leave your ego at the door, and yeah, 
you really want to go for it, um, you need to put the hours in, whatever that may be, whatever you want to be, um, and, and, it, and then you can do it. So another one of my favorite interviews was with Frederick M. So Frederick was another person who I met, well, at least met over the phone um, while in Australia, because he runs a small business in Sydney with his partner called Beginning Film, um, which he runs alongside his photography staff where he frequently travels to Japan to source and sell film cameras. And he was the one that actually sourced my Pentax 6-7 camera, which is my medium format camera of choice. And it was through this interaction that led me onto Frederick's actual portfolio, which is amazing. It's one thing to be a great photographer, but in my opinion, it's another thing entirely to be a great fashion photographer which i think frederick is he shot for the likes of gq and ralph Lauren, and i'd really recommend you checking out his full portfolio on his website frederickm.com so one of my favorite parts of his interview was listening to frederick's background and childhood memories of living in the deep south in the states where for him growing up it was super important for him and his brother brother to every sunday prepare his clothes for the coming week set them aside and iron all of them and that came from a lifestyle where he and his family didn't have a lot growing up so always looking your best and expressing yourself through your own self-image through fashion was really important and that was almost like the seed from which his passion for fashion came from um the other thing about frederick which i really respect is that even though he's an accomplished fashion photographer he said that he's still always continually continually learning about his craft particularly with studio lighting um, studio setups and that's a really important reminder that no matter how good you are at something there's always room to learn so having that open mind is extremely important and one final point um, that i'd like to bring up about his interview was um how frederick got his first got one of his first paid jobs as a photographer um, which came as a result from a bit of a chance meeting with someone in the industry and the reason I wanted to bring this up is because opportunities like this tend to arise from putting yourself in the best possible position where these interactions are possible. Um, and that speaks to the old saying, which is that proximity gives way to chance. So in other words, you want to put yourself as close to the action as possible or close to the shakers and movers in whatever industry you want to break out into. That's why if I'm not shooting myself, then I'm assisting in the studio. And if I'm not assisting, I'm interviewing people for the podcast. Um, and if I'm not doing that, I'm sending out emails uh, for jobs and assisting roles. So proximity gives way to chance and you want to put yourself in the best possible position for good things to happen. And when they do, you want to grab them with both hands. So here's Frederick talking about his early childhood memories that planted the seed for his career as a as a fashion photographer. Yeah, I, I would just say like growing up, there was nobody in my family, like no photographers. I had not even owned a camera um, prior to moving wow. to Korea. So um, I would just say um, the thing that I was really passionate about, though, as a as a kid, though, and I, I guess looking back at it, you can consider me doing I could consider it doing like some type of art but um when i was a kid i used to i used to just like mom well i don't know i guess like so now i work in fashion and and um and i know that sounds like really broad but you know i'm, I'm i guess doing my own like art direction creative more creative direction and like fashion and whether it be photography i do some video or or um, just styling runway shows casting like just kind of my whole vision for the most part um, and when I was a kid, one of the things like my mom, cause we had chores when I was growing up. So one of the things that my mom used to do was like every Sunday, my thing was to like put out me and my brother's clothes for the whole entire week. And I had to iron everything for the whole entire week. <laughs> yeah. Like, like right. you know, most people don't even iron, but like in the South, like you had to iron your clothes. 
it was like wow. it, it, if you if you if you really look at like old old like southern culture from the early days it was always about you always want to show your best especially in the black culture in the south it was always like you know because you get the people shining shoes on the street and that was really a part of the cultures and you want to look your best that's kind of why I guess you could say, why do black people always spend so much money on clothes and, you know, want to have diamonds <laughs> and stuff? It's like, because that's ingrained in us from, you know, not having a lot to where we want to show what, who we are as a person versus all the stuff that we can't really have. So um, I guess you could say, so um, having having the ability, I mean, sorry, having the clothes, I mean, it's not having the clothes, make like preparing the clothes on the on um, Sundays just kind of gave me a chance to like start exploring like I guess what style is because you know I'm picking up me and my brother's clothes for the week and I don't know something about that just like as I went to school I would care I cared a lot about like the way I looked and like the style of clothes I had on. Okay so if there was ever an interview I did what I would recommend listening with a pen and paper at hand ready for note-taking it's the one with Olivia Bossert. Olivia is a fashion photographer with over 10 years experience in the industry and has shot campaigns for brands including Barber, Jules, Crew Clothing and White Stuff. Um, Now she also has a side business where she shares her trade secrets on how to pitch to the clients that you want to work for. Um, She does that through her educational courses. Um, She also hosts a fantastic podcast of her own called It Starts With A Click, where she gives some of her best advice on how to make your photography business work for you. Um, Now, in my interview with her, we spoke about a wide range of things from how to market yourself on the various social media outlets to how to make your photography business profitable. Now, one of the most important distinctions Olivia makes which I've not heard many, if any, other photographers or creatives discuss, is that when you're shooting for a fashion brand, you're essentially, when you strip everything back to its bare bones, you're essentially completing a sales goal. You are creating imagery that should ultimately lead people to want to part with their hard-earned cash and buy the clothes that you're photographing. That's basically the backbone of this industry its sales, its money, and its business. Now, how you choose to perceive this is totally up to you. But in my opinion, I think it's really important to keep this in mind. And it absolutely does not have to come at the expense of your own creative vision. Both can work hand in hand. It's just about knowing your worth as a photographer and charging accordingly. I mean, think about it. If you photograph for example, I don't know, a, a Montclair jacket that retails for a thousand pounds each and your photographs are used for the campaign, which ends up selling tens of thousands of them. You're not going to charge a 500 pound day rate. You're going to charge at least a four figure payday, especially if the client or Montclair only has to sell one to make a thousand pounds. Now, this is a obviously a grossly simplified example, but hopefully it illustrates the point that you shouldn't undervalue your work. Um, So we also talk about how Olivia landed her first paid job, um, how to be better at making and managing your money, how to handle the emotional ups and downs of being a fashion photographer, her thoughts on TikTok and lots of other great things. Um, If you want to learn more about Olivia, head over to her website at oliviabossert.com. That's O-L-I-V-I-A-B-O-S-S-E-R-T.com. She's got loads of resources as well that can help you with your photography ambitions. um, And she has a really impressive portfolio to check out as well. Um, So yeah, here's some of the interview I had with Olivia. Enjoy. You know, I remember there was one episode that I found really interesting. Well, all of your episodes are interesting, but this one in particular, because it, it touched on quite a, a taboo subject, which is money. Mm-hmm. And your approach to finances is, is is quite interesting. You do kind of like a reverse approach to formulating your rates and how much you're going to charge clients. So so you take into account you know, your monthly living costs, maintenance costs of your equipment, et cetera. And then that basically determines your minimum base rate. And then 
I'm assuming you kind of just add your profit margin on top. Yeah. Can you explain just a little bit about that and why you decided to to talk about it? Because like I said, it is kind of a taboo subject in within the creative field. Mm, I love talking about money. I think that it is so important that we talk about money because just as you said, it's this weirdly taboo subject, but we yeah. all need it and we all use it every <laughs> day and we all need to make yeah. it. So why is it so awkward to talk about? Like, I don't understand. So the reason I worked out my pricing like that is because that's kind of how I was taught, to be honest. I was taught that, and it's, it's, it's logical, you know, you need to be able to cover your expenses. I have to work out, you know, what I earn, what I need to earn to cover my bills, to cover my business costs, and then what do I want to make on top of that? And that is what I need to charge. Um, and then in terms of like, having a system in place for managing your money it's so important that we not only have a good price but then also have a system in place that's going to help us continue to make it and manage it I find that I speak to so many photographers who just have no idea how much money they actually have in the bank how much their expenses are actually costing them what they actually need every single month And I have a really great book I can recommend, which is called Profit First, which is by a guy called Mike. Can't remember his last name. It's quite Mm. a long last name, but it's, um, it's an incredible book that I read about two and a half years ago now. And it's, it's a system for managing your finances, which means that you're always going to be making a profit from your business, no matter how much money you make. And the reason, I mean, I'm not going to try and explain the whole book because it's quite complicated Mm -hmm. and I do encourage you to read it because it's very much life-changing. But essentially, most business owners, regardless whether whether they're photographers or anything else, go into business because they're excited about creating a business. But then what happens is all the money they make just goes straight back into the business and we never actually enjoy or reap the rewards of all our hard work because starting a business is really really hard work and it requires a lot of effort over a lot of time and profit first means that the moment you start earning even if it's just like 10 pounds a small percentage of that 10 pounds goes into a little profit pot so that every quarter or every six months or once a year you can give yourself a little bonus and it means you're always reaping the rewards of running a business did that kind of exchange for time and your skill for money ever concern you because that's in contrast to having a business where you're selling units of mm-hmm. something do you, do you know what i mean it's um yeah yeah was that was that ever a point of concern for you of course and that's why i have my online courses cuz i don't mm. ever want to be 100% reliant on my art to make me money and the reason yeah. i do that is because and it's, you know, especially in because of the current pandemic we're in, obviously we're recording this just towards the sort of middle point, I feel, of the coronavirus pandemic. And it, it became really clear to me when this started just how important it was that I not only continue to build on my um, side hustles, income streams, it's kind of what I call them, but start to tell other people to do it too. You don't necessarily have to teach online courses but I absolutely implore photographers to start looking at ways they can have other revenue streams because there is no reason for us to rely on one thing. We live in 2020. We have the internet at our disposal. There are so many things that we can do really, really quickly. And I wrote a whole blog post on this, if anyone wants to go and read it, about side hustles for photographers. But I didn't want to ever be in a position where I had to have my photography, which is the thing that I cherish the most and I adore the most out yeah. of all of the stuff yeah. I do, be the one with all the pressure on it. So although that my photography does currently earn more, most of my income, it doesn't m- earn all of it, which means that I can still be a little bit pickier about which jobs I choose. It means that I can create more of my own personal work because not everything I do has a massive goal behind it. Sometimes I just want to make something. And if I relied on my photography to provide all of my income, I don't think I'd be as free or feel as free to create the stuff that I want to create. Another one of my favorite interviews was with commercial sports photographer, Matt Ben Stone. 
This interview came about when I received a message on Instagram from Matt saying that he'd be interested in meeting up and doing an interview together. And after checking out some of his work and some of what he's doing, I was really up for having a chat with him. And from that came a really interesting interview, which I think we can all learn something from. So Matt is an international award-winning commercial sports photographer whose clientele include Red Bull, Vita Coco, McLaren Automotive and Calf Apparel. In the interview, we discussed a variety of topics, including how he approaches his photo shoots, um, how he got started with photography, um, how to mitigate against risk on a photo shoot, and how he deals with competitors and the importance of networking in the industry and actually taking the time to meet people in the industry. Um, so one really good example of this, particularly for photographers who are still building their portfolio and doing lots of test shoots is to arrange a time to meet the agent who's booking the models for you. So you can buy them a coffee and just introduce yourself to them in person rather than over an email exchange. Um, that way you can discuss all sorts of things in, in person, like what your ambitions are as a photographer, what your style is, um, potential projects that you have in the pipeline. Um, you can even ask the agent about the agency that they work for. The, the idea is you want to build a relationship with them that benefits the two of you. So in this case, they provide the models and you provide great photos for their portfolio, which you can use for your own portfolio as well. Now, I understand that times are tricky with all of these COVID restrictions, but it's just something to keep in mind um, and to think about doing once these restrictions are eased. I person personally took on this advice um, and went to visit Elliot, um, who's an agent at Cult Models. Um, I met him in their headquarters in London. Um, and yeah, we have a really good relationship where if I want to do a test shoot, he'll send me a list of models that are available for a shoot. And yeah, we just take things from there. So it's always a good idea to build these sorts of relationships um, as you progress in your career. Um, so you can check out more about Matt's work at mattbenstone.com. And in this clip that I'm about to play, Matt is talking about how he handles the competitive side of things as a photographer. Enjoy. Yes, I do have competitors. And yes, you can think of them as the other photographers as competitors when they when they get a job of a client that you might have been chasing or lusting after to shoot and you think oh damn but you know i think once you you know and i would say that i'm sort of quite niche within my sector if you like it's within i'm i, I shoot within the sports umbrella but it's sort of majority of my work comes within cycling so i guess that is it feels quite niche, but there are there are still lots of photographers, at, you know, or, or specialist photographers who who concentrate on cycling. So, yeah, it can be quite competitive. But I am, or you do, just become aware of other photographers who who get the jobs, and and when you see their work, you're like, actually, that is really amazing. Um, you know, I'm really glad that you've you've uh, you've shot that and you've done that because it looks it looks fab, you know, and. I think there is, although it is competitive, there is still enough work to to go around, and you shouldn't be you should be concentrating on your own work um, and making your own work as as good as you can be, rather than um, looking at sort of other people's work and, and and sort of thinking, oh damn, I wish I wish I did that because when if you do that, when you put your own work out, you know. Uh, other people within that community, I'm sure, will, will will be thinking the same. So I think, I think it comes down to like um, almost like imposter syndrome, you know, thinking, oh damn, you know, it's like I wish I got, I got that, but actually, it's like you should have belief to to be able to put your own work out and be like, yeah, I'm really proud of this. I've shot this. This is this is great, and um, you know, and it and it still stands up against um, sort of the other photographers' work, you know, in some ways, but. It is it is really good to sort of know your um, contemporaries, if you like, because um, earlier this year uh, I was heading up um, the photography team. Um, I was like a like the photography director, if you like, for a um, a velodrome event 
uh, where I I was in charge or I was the head photographer and I was in charge of um, a couple of other photographers uh, as well, as well as sort of photo techs and photo editors. So I, I was in charge of putting the whole team together and sort of facilitating the the media and the, the photography for that particular event across several days. Um, so in that instance, it's really handy to to know who your you know contemporaries are because sometimes you have to reach out and you have to have help or you know they 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 might be assisting you on um, on on your bigger jobs or you know things like that. So yeah, it's definitely. Um, it's definitely good to be to be friends, not foes. So one episode that was a bit different to my usual discussions with photographers was my interview with Moya Palk, a fashion model who's been featured in campaigns for Prada, British Vogue, Zara and Uniqlo. Um, so in addition to this, Moya is co-founder of the Models Empowered podcast, which is a fantastic resource that other models can use for support and advice when working in the industry. I really enjoyed this one, and it was really interesting to hear from someone who works on the other side of the camera. One thing that I took away from this interview is that models don't have to just be someone that stands in front of the camera. They can be dynamic, they can let the personality through on a shoot, and you can collaborate with them on shoots as well. Listen to what ideas they might have to get the best shots. Um, so here's a snippet from the interview with Moya where she's talking about how photographers can get the best out of the model on a photo shoot. What are some of the things photographers can do to kind of help you um, the most on the shoot in terms of suggesting um, poses and, and kind of just bringing the best out of you as, as a model? What are some of the things that a photographer can do to make just the whole process um, better and more fun and more creative? Um, I definitely think before the shoot starts, just grabbing the model models and just having a good chat with them and making them feel comfortable, making them, you know, just introduce yourself, like whatever, just to build some kind of rapport before the shoot starts so that you can kind of get a feel for what they want and they can tell you, oh, I'd really like these images or references or mood board sort of things. Um, and then as a model, you definitely understand, okay, that's fine. And then I'm always like, well, tell me if, you know, you're not, this is not what you're, you had in your mind and we can play around a bit. But I think as a model, definitely you've got to be up for getting things wrong. Like you can't just be static. You need to move around. You need to have fun with it. And they will tell you, you know, if they like the shoot, then you've just got to be a bit playful, I think, instead of, because in my head, I always think I know what they want. And then, you know, they won't be like that. You just have to be quite adaptive and use your space. And that, and usually if you just don't care what, you know what you look like you might look like really stupid doing all these things but you know they'll always be actually happy in the end with the result if you're a bit more like okay we'll have a play with this and see what happens but yeah I definitely think just being nice I think some photographers especially maybe are a bit more shy and reserved around a big team or like models which is fair enough everyone has their own personality but I do think just getting over that like I breaking the ice a little bit I guess before starting because at the end of the day you're work, working together for the whole day you want the best results you want the best pictures and then I just think if a photographer's being rude it's just not going to bring the vibe of the day it's not going to be fun for anyone like anyone in the team sort of and it's just awkward and then the photos won't be good so I just think yeah making like a relaxing vibe and sort of being friendly having a chat before the shoot and showing yeah. the record and than just being, you know, okay. feeling free to explore the space and just to get the shot in the end. If you're familiar with my work, you'll know that I'm a big fan of ocean and surf photography. You've probably already gathered that from my interview with Russell Ord. But by extension, I'm also a big fan of outdoor adventure and surf brands that are ethical and support the protection of our natural world. And if you're into this sort of stuff as well, then you'd be familiar with the clothing brand Finisterre. Um, I remember back in March last year when I was sending out emails to people who I really wanted to interview. And I really wanted to talk to whoever was in charge with the creative side of things at Finisterre, which is David Gray. So I pinged them an email 
um, and didn't hear anything back until November later that year when David replied back saying um, if I was still up for an interview. So I absolutely jumped at the chance and um, yeah, we put together a really good episode for you guys and he really gave us a great insight into the growth and development of Finisterre as a brand and of his own personal journey living in London and making a name for himself as a photographer and graphic designer and then ultimately making the big move to Cornwall to join forces with the the then small crew at Finisterre and um, to see them mature and refine their branding. So to what to what it is now, uh, not to mention the top quality ethic, ethically sourced clothing that they produce is really impressive and, and quite inspirational as well. So the clip that I'm about to play from his interview is probably my favorite part of the entire interview where he talked about rejection, the importance of going out and meeting people and networking. And he also touches on the serendipitous nature of the publishing and photography industry, which kind of led to David's photography work getting published in one of the first editions of Dazed and Confused magazine. But I think the most important thing here is that David really had um, a healthy fuck it kind of attitude. Um, he didn't care if his work got rejected because he always knew that he was going to do it anyway, regardless of what other people thought or if it got published or not. Um, and he talks about how this kind of attitude goes a long way in this industry. So, so here's the clip. Enjoy. As you were kind of describing kind of the good old days, if you like, of, of when you were kind of just, just starting out living in London, not making a lot of money, you were very proactive and you said it at the beginning, you were very hungry. Yeah. I mean, you weren't chasing the money. You were doing your own exhibitions, producing your own photo book. Um, and it sounds like you, you had and you really embraced your own creative freedom. And then to, to see your own work published in, in Dazed and Confused, like that must have like mentally uh, propelled you and given you the the confidence and the and almost like the go-ahead like yeah your work is good enough you can you can do this sort of thing were there any times at the beginning where you kind of faced rejection you weren't getting replies from um publishing companies or, or for brands that you want to shoot for were there any times where you know it, you just didn't feel very confident and you were kind of almost debating whether, whether or not you wanted to pursue this as a career? Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, you get rejected all the time, um, you know, but you don't, but I think careers are funny words with when I, I don't, the photography, I mean, it's, it's different with Finisterre, but back then it was more, it was definitely a more kind of art based thing. I didn't, yeah. um, I didn't, I didn't really approach publishing companies. I went and saw people and I, I, I didn't, I kind of figured and I do it for people now as well. And, um, and give people the time of day with this stuff because like, what harm can it do to phone someone up? Like, and, and kind of passion and hunger goes a long way. So even if you don't, you learn something, even through rejections or it's not even rejections really. It's just like going for something that maybe doesn't, you know, or it doesn't come off the way you thought you had to go at something or, but you learn something off all of that and you do meet people. And, you know, I would get, if people phone up and they're just like, it's not even chance in their arm. They're just like, look, you know, how do I do this? Pretty new to this. And when you're young and you're, you know, you're just out of college, I just don't think I've thought about it. I'd phone up people, I'd book to see people, I would, you know, it wasn't even with the name of anything really happening. It was just kind of just eyeing up how this stuff works. Um, so publishers, I remember going to Fiden and talking to a guy there. I mean, I don't know how he said yes, but I said, look, can I just come and grab lunch with you? And we're just like, this is what I'm doing. And, and that enthusiasm goes a long way, I think. Um, so I didn't, I didn't really have any outcomes and because I wanted to self publish, I didn't, I wasn't really on, it wasn't really in the hands of everyone, anyone else other than me. Um, yeah. And I, I, I legitimately think, and I do say this anyway, that 
everyone's got their own right to self-expression and however they do that um you know everyone's got as much right as anyone else to put something out there and put their thing you know how far it goes what happens um is there's a certain amount that's up to you and then there's a certain amount of like timing or stuff happens or someone's willing to pick up the phone at that time or um but days and confused was a was a break the that happened early actually so that happened quite quickly but that is a, that's a real hustle of like i was on the phone the whole time i you know i was treading this path i the days and confused thing came out of a it was basically i went to see an image library and they were like, yeah, it's all right. It's not really our thing. But um, I know the new editor at Dazed and Confused. I think it was Emma Reeve, I think. Um, I know the new editor at Dazed and Confused. Um, why don't you give her a ring when you leave here and, and, and see, you know, I think she might be into it. So I rang, up, I rang her up straight away just on the way to the tube. I said, look, I just spoke to this guy. He says that you might be into the work. I'm in town. I can be over in half an hour. What do you reckon? She says, yeah, come by, swing by. And that's it. It's like, it's it, 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 you don't know how things are going to lead to each other. So just go for whatever you, you know, just, it's like a bit of an investigation really. Um, and this, this industry tends to kind of lend it, lend itself to that environment where things can happen quite spontaneously and just, just yeah. by chance. Yeah. Um, yeah, so just, sure. just out of interest, when you were heading to that meeting after talking to, to the lady at um, Dazed, did you have anything with you? Did you have your portfolio to show her? Yeah, because I had yeah, because I'd just been to see the image library, so I had my portfolio and stuff, but I think I mean I don't I, yeah, I just yeah, I just I just went with it really. I didn't just I there's a certain amount I uh, I'm gonna. This is gonna sound weird, but it's it's like um, it's when you. It's almost like you don't really. You do care, but you you're not you're not you're not putting your. It doesn't matter what the outcome is, and I think yeah. that having that, people feed off that. I think you give off an energy where you're like, well, you know, I'm gonna do it anyway. So, yeah, <laughs> do you know what I mean, it's gonna. Um, and I think that you give off that energy and and things kind of i don't know it wasn't but it's not as purposeful as that it was just like like you know and of course yeah rejection you do but you just you just move on the opportunities you see or you just go with things and like it doesn't matter if it doesn't work out um it just you know it will lead you somewhere you'll learn something something will happen you might meet someone now, sticking with the southwest of England, the final highlight I'll be playing um, for you guys from the 2020 archive was with my interview with surf photographer Megan Hemsworth. Um, talking to her was great fun, and she has just this amazing enthusiasm and passion for ocean and surf photography. And we've promised each other the next time I'm in Cornwall, we're going to collaborate on a shoot together which is something that I'm really looking forward to. So in this last clip, here's Megan talking about how she approaches her photo shoots on the beach. Like, you know, if, if a big job's coming, I'll spend days beforehand planning every angle that I'm desperate to shoot from. You know, so wow, if I know that's my interesting. Lady, yeah, so it's a good tip, really. If you, Google Maps will become your best friend. As if, if you know the location you're going to shoot, maybe you've already been there, maybe you need to scout it the week before or whatever. Yeah, is find all of the. I mean, f for me personally, this is at a beach. I'll I'll look at the edges that the cliffs are making, or maybe find caves or whatever I want to use to my advantage on the day. Um, and yeah, that excitement of oh my god, the sunset's going to fall exactly between these two cliffs, like things like that, just get me so excited. So and do, yeah, do you do you work with mood boards at all? Is that something that you uh, that you work with? not mood boards no i um i love again google maps i'll screenshot and draw all over it um on my phone right. with little plans okay. of where i'll shoot um i've got an app that i it literally shows you the angle of where the sun will be at what time of the day and then i can work out shadows and things like that so i love to 
do that. But then um, inspiration-wise, uh, let's say say I was using Instagram. If I, I, I draw a lot of inspiration from film photographers, and although not every job sadly can be shot on film, um, it certainly drives my inspiration. So, you know, if you're just hashtagging a type of film maybe or a film camera, yeah, the outcomes even if it's a cityscape and I'm drawing inspiration from it, maybe from how the light falls on a building, it, it, mm-hmm. you can draw it from many different forms. Okay, so there you have it. That was a really quick compilation of some of the highlights from the various guests that I've had on this podcast. And like I said at the beginning of this episode, um, I'd also like to talk a little bit about some odd and perhaps less conventional sources of inspiration for um, photographers and creatives. Uh, Now, the first one that I want to talk about is childhood memories. One of my earliest memories is being at school around five years old. And once a week, we as a class would take a walk down the street to the Lewis Carroll Library, where we would sit down cross-legged on the floor while the librarian would read us a story And the memories of that are so vivid to me because I can remember every tiny detail of the librarian's face, her posture, the shape of her mouth as she would emphasize every single syllable of every word, um, the sound of her voice, even the wrinkles on her neck, which was bizarrely always sunburnt. Um, It's crazy how vivid these memories are. I, I mean, I also remember the sound the paper would make as she would turn the page and the shine on the paper as well. Now, as strange as this may seem, the reason why I consider this a source of inspiration is because as children, we are very sensory and extremely impressionable. Every sight, sound and smell, I remember just being really amplified as a kid compared to now as an adult. Um, I can remember the the landscape and contours of someone's face so clearly. So my point is taking photographs today should be like trying to trigger some kind of sensory experience, which is difficult in this modern age because we're constantly bombarded with bright, flashy images on our phones. So just like my childhood memories of the librarian, I try to hopefully evoke some kind of sensory liveliness in the audience with my own work and and emblazon an image into their mind that perhaps even triggers some sense of nostalgia within them. Um, there's something really special about photographs that that I'd never seen before, but somehow there's a strange familiarity to them that I can't really explain. But it's strangely comforting and intriguing, and and that inspires me because photographs should be about provoking the viewer to feel something and not just see something. Um, we experience this phenomenon all the time with certain smells and tastes. Uh, for example, <clears throat> whenever I eat melon sweets or pear drops, I feel transported back to my childhood. And I find utilizing nostalgia and old memories as a real source of inspiration in photography and one that I want to use a lot more in my own work. Um, So the second source of inspiration for photographers and creatives that I want to mention is, now bear with me on this one, is the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Now, I could have said any kind of combat sports promotion, whether it's a boxing promotion company, um, like Matchroom Boxing or PBC, but the reason why I've chosen the UFC, um, or specifically its president, Dana White, is because the UFC has truly led the way for sports and entertainment in 2020, um, which we have not seen from any other sporting company or institution at this scale. Why is this important? And and why is this a source of inspiration? Well, in 2020, the media was vehemently against and heavily criticised Dana White for even considering putting on fighting events during a global pandemic. Never mind actually pulling off multiple successful bouts, including most notably the lightweight championship between Khabib Nurmagomedov and Justin Gaethje, which sold around half a million pay-per-views. Now, at the time, people were saying that he's putting the health of his fighters and staff members at risk um, for holding these events um, and that he's just interested in the money. But 
instead of being held back by the opinions of the media, he decided to go to extreme lengths to hold the fights on an island with no audience and with every fighter being tested for COVID um, and quarantining them as necessary. So he brought in all of these necessary procedures to ensure the safety of everyone involved in these events. And because he did this, it meant he could still operate as a business, not have to let anyone go from the company. So he retained all of his staff. Um, He was able to pay his fighters. He brought in revenue for the company and he brought entertainment to people around the world at a time when everyone is feeling the strain from the effects of this pandemic. Um, It also meant that the storyline and narratives of these fights and these athletes could continue and their legacies could, could be built as well. And these fighters and athletes can continue to inspire a whole generation of fight fans. No other sport or promotional company went to the lengths the UFC did to deliver sporting events. It's inspiring because... Dana White had to really think creatively to ensure these events could take place. I mean, choosing to hold them on an island is bloody genius. And it really serves as a reminder to be persistent and tenacious with whatever it is you want to achieve. The UFC itself deliver amazing events. The production value of these fights alone is brilliant and uh, theatrical and exciting. You know, just from the lighting to the commentating, um, the ring announcer, the press conferences, weigh-ins, promotional material they use to build up these fights is really creative and makes the hairs on my neck stand sometimes. And and that in and of itself is something that, that I use as as inspiration. And I think we can all use as um, as creatives moving forward. And staying on the topic of sports, on the 12th of October, 2019, a record was broken which redefines what we thought was possible for any human to achieve. Can you guess what it is? I'll give you a clue. On May 6, 1954, a man called Roger Bannister was the first ever to run a four-minute mile, something that had never previously been achieved and something that many people didn't think was possible. But sure enough, Roger Bannister proved them wrong. And since then, the four minute mile has been accomplished by hundreds, if not thousands of people around the world, some of whom are even just high school athletes. So Roger Bannister set a new standard, a new possibility, which we as a species have achieved multiple times since then. So in a similar fashion to this, on October 12th, 2019, Elliot Kipchoge, a Kenyan long distance runner, ran the first sub two hour marathon in one hour and 59 minutes and 40 seconds. And to just give you an idea of how quick that is, nobody had run a single four minute mile before 1954. Yet to complete a marathon in under two hours, you'll have to run at an average of four minutes and 34 seconds per mile which means you'll need to be running at a pace that back in 1954 was pretty close to a world record, but you'll have to do that 26 times with no break as that's how long a marathon is. So it was an incredible achievement, but the bit that I want to focus on as a source of inspiration from a photographer's perspective is the 20 seconds leading up to the actual run. If you watch the footage of the race, you see Elliot Kipchoge walk up to the start line to join the pace runners. Um, So these are runners that he's not actually competing against. They're just there to help him set the pace of the run. But in that moment when he's standing on the start line before the gun fires to start the run, Elliot to me has the most incredible look on his face. One that I wish I could have walked up to with a film camera and taken a portrait of in a really nice black and white film stock because you could sense so many things from the look on his face. Firstly, he looks a bit older than the other pace runners. Um, He has a more sort of weathered face, which gives him this this kind of aura of wisdom and leadership and and experience. Um, You can see as his gaze alternates between staring into the far distance and looking down to his trainers that he's extremely focused and just locked in mentally to what 
is inevitably going to be a physically punishing 26 miles. And I find this adds to a kind of subtle look of humbleness as well, because although he knows, and we all know that he's the best runner on that start line, he's going to have to endure a lot of pain to break the world record. So I'm sure he would have been feeling a lot of nerves. And even though there are millions watching this event as it's being broadcast around the world, he just looks like he's completely alone with himself. So all of these emotions that he must have been feeling and the things running through his mind, I think are all contained behind the eyes. And I find that fascinating and a really interesting subject to photograph. It's a look that you see quite often in boxers and MMA fighters just before a fight when they square off in front of their opponent. And it's these moments that I find really, really inspiring as a photographer. Okay, so there you have it. Some perhaps unconventional sources of inspiration that I like to use and would like to use more of in my own photography work. Um, Now, before I let you guys go, the last thing I'd like to do is just read my last essay, which I put up on my website a couple of weeks ago now, actually. Um, And I'll just dive right into it. It's titled The North Face and Gucci Collaboration, um, my thoughts. Um, And I thought I would write this because there seems to be a lot of these fashion collaborations these days and this one in particular caught my eye so I thought I'd put some some words together about it. This is the kind of campaign that I would love to photograph. Shooting outdoor landscapes and fashion portraits are both my passions so combining both of these photography interests would make this a dream project for me. Having said that I do really like the images they've shown so far on the Gucci website. They look dreamy and vintage with a touch of opulence. However, this does translate to a visual that seems quite awkward and out of place. I mean, let's face it. How many people do you know go on hikes dressed in pristinely clean, flowery Gucci jackets and backpacks? Probably none. But of course, this is all by design. You can't truly harmonize the rugged nature of the North Face and the glamour of Gucci. But I think that's the whole point. I can imagine whoever created these images wanted to embrace and highlight this visual dissonance, which is central to its appeal in the first place. After all, this is, if nothing else, a fashion statement. By the way, how many people do you know who own a North Face bomber jacket, never mind a Gucci outfit, actually go out hiking and climb mountains? Allow me to take another wild stab in the dark and say, not many. Shock horror. My point is, who gives a shit what the garments are intended for? If it looks cool, people will buy it. And what's not to like about having a Gucci and North Face logo on your jacket? That's the message I feel Gucci are unashamedly flaunting to our faces with this campaign. These collaborations speak to an evolving fashion culture with a visual, social and economic language that is more accessible to a wider target audience. In its simplest form, this collaboration is about producing exclusive pieces available for purchase at a premium price. But in the grand scheme of things, it's actually, rather ironically, less about exclusivity and more about creating a fashion culture that's more inclusive and one that transcends the economic boundaries of these luxury fashion powerhouses, which were once reserved for the rich and famous, but are now available to the wider population. Now, don't get it twisted. These collaboration pieces are not cheap, but intelligent marketing, such as partnership with a relatively affordable high street brand, is designed to entice, introduce, and initiate new customers who earn a modest income to commit to, or at least start considering, purchasing Gucci Clubber. These fashion brand collaborations are becoming increasingly common. We've seen it before with Nike and Dior, Supreme and Louis Vuitton, a bathing ape and Stussy, just to name a few other examples. Although each of these aforementioned brands have built a unique identity throughout the years, many of them are no longer the individual boutique brands they used to be. Rather, they've been bought by larger corporations who also own other notable brands. Now, these corporations are global fashion powerhouses driven by profit. And when you take this into consideration, when you see these types of brand collaborations, ask yourself, is it possible that these partnerships become less of a creative endeavor and more of a revenue building exercise? 
Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think the latter is a bad thing by any means. And like I said in my first point, it's the kind of project that I would love to shoot myself one day. However, I do believe that some brands do collaborations better than others. For example, the Natural History Museum and Finisterre collaboration was brilliant. It's an entire concept that is congruent to each brand's identity and philosophy. It's a partnership of principles and values for the preservation of the natural world. And it was also a creative endeavor. It's also a collaboration that was totally unexpected, but makes complete sense. One brand steeped in history, an institution in its own right, merging with a modern brand delivering quality garments inspired by adventure. My point is, it would be nice to see fashion collaborations that are less about simply having two brand logos stitched on a jacket and more about a collaboration of values, ideas, craftsmanship, innovation, heritage, legacy, and storytelling. Otherwise, much like how a poorly stitched logo will unravel over time, the novelty of these brand collaborations will soon dissipate, and with their increase in popularity, the law of diminishing returns could render these ventures, well, pointless. Okay, there you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Sticky Rice. I've got some really cool um, interviews, line- <coughs> interviews lined up for um, for this year, so I'll be looking forward to, to sharing those with you, um, and I look forward to you guys joining me again uh, for another episode of Sticky Rice soon. Okay, take care, guys.